I was fearful that we would get people not wanting to wear masks. We would get people not wanting to social distance. But it generally didn't happen because again, we spent a lot of time in front of house curtain in regards to proactively and safely intervening early if there is a problem. The most challenging thing was trying not to be so loving and hugging, and that's challenging. Yeah, and not turn myself into the mask police. Um, I like to spend most of my time wandering about and speaking to people because I'm a big believer that safety shouldn't be behind the desk. Welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast, and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna Robb. On this episode, we'll be talking to Steve Flaherty in a case study on how a show was able to reopen and stay open during the COVID-19 pandemic. Steve is a risk, crisis and disaster management consultant and strategic health and safety advisor who has been a trainer, coach, mentor for over 28 years. Disciplines inclusive but not exclusive to emergency first response health and safety, aquatic safety, and protective safety security skills and procedures. He has instructed multinational audiences in a variety of safety and security training modalities and in various languages with the help of interpreters globally. Steve is a confident and reliable individual with a commercial and practical approach to solving problems. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We're happy to hear you. hear you. Can you please tell us about yourself a little bit? Okay, so where do I start? I've been living in the region now 15 years. I joined the British military at the age of 16, served just short of 15 years, and then got out when contracting was still good in Iraq. I spent five years in Iraq working for the US military as a private security consultant, where I started to settle here in the UAE. When I left Iraq in 2010, I basically had enough of contracting. I continued to work here, consulting, training. I bought my own business. I then sold my own business due to injury. I consulted for various training and qualification bodies. And then I met George Agbuya. And he invited me to come and work at the Pearl at the start of 2017. The show was still in training and formation. So we were still in a building site here at Al Habtor City, which was kind of strange to see the, the theatre evolve around us. So every single day, something new. Um, we went straight into a creation session with Franco. That was quite interesting. And then we went into show operations. And then a few years down the line, unfortunately, COVID-19 hit us and we were forced to close back in March of last year. So that's me in a nutshell, really. And what was your transition like from the military to show business? I've always had an interest in show business. Like even from a small child, I, I love to go to shows. I love drama at school. But since the age of three, I always wanted to join the military. So even when I was in the military, I still continue to go to shows because I love the theatre, I love opera. 
Um, so when I got this opportunity, I thought, absolutely fantastic. This is this is my 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 ideal job to do something that I really enjoy looking at, watching, hearing, being a part of. So the transition initially, I found that in some ways people were super friendly, but when it came to reporting things, they were a little bit standoffish. They were like, who's this health and safety guy? Because what I've been told over the years is not many shows in the world have a dedicated health and safety guy. So I started to try to chip away at that rather negative wall of communication in regards to the challenges that the artistic direction department, the technical departments were having, and how I could assist them. Over the course of the years, it's kind of changed now. So people come to me to ask for advice. And I think that's really cool because where I was then, very few people were talking to me. They were talking to me over a cigarette or over a coffee or a beer, but they weren't so much talking to me about safety. But now, I'm more of a consultant, even though officially my title is there to health and safety manager, I manage through empowering people to take ownership of their own safety. And it's really enjoyable. So my transition, I found it challenging to start with, especially the phraseology of the theatre. But I really enjoy it. You know, it's cool. That's nice to hear that you have have some growth and enjoyed the transition overall. Yeah, because I love I love to continue to learn new things because uh, as a health and safety or in fact security and crisis management practitioner, I'm more of a generalist, but I like to immerse my th- myself into each different department. I spend a lot of time with artistic direction, stage management, all of the technical departments, the performer wellness department in regards to emergency management procedures. And audit the rescue procedures for each element of the show. And as the show morphed from the very, very beginnings through the second micro-creation session, we started to delve deeper into the actual strategic elements of safety by design in all of the artistic pieces that we've got. So that's kind of cool. And the other one-off shows that we've done actually looking at the capabilities of the theatre is absolutely fantastic. You know, because the theatre itself, I believe, was designed specifically out of Franco's mind for the show. But we've done two Ministry of Education one-off shows that involved children. So we creatively and technically developed a show that starred children. We've done various video events. We've had cabarets. We've had dinner events actually on the dry um, actually on the wet stage itself where we've got tables we've had um, a final of top chef so we've actually proved that the theater itself has so much capability and that's cool you know doing micro shows within a larger show and actually enabling clearer communication to get full buy-in from our local partners is absolutely fantastic because they're starting to immerse themselves more within the show as well, so that's cool. For those who have not been to the Middle East or worked in the Middle East, could you describe for us a little bit about uh, the culture of Dubai and, you know, like what are, the, what, are, what are the things that are unexpected? Because I think when we start to talk about 
coronavirus and the reaction and show business, I think it play, culture probably plays into that. So to, to begin to paint a little picture of first of like how does life exist as a even as a Westerner in Dubai? Well, Dubai um, is a very culturally diverse country. The UAE is, in fact. You know, if you look at the United Arab Emirates, only approximately 11% of the population is actually Emirati. And then the other... 88 point something percent is um, a wide, diverse, eclectic mix of different cultures. So actually living here, it's, it's really good. You've been to Dubai, Anna? And I know Anna Aguilera has, yeah. Many times. Constantly reinvented itself. You know, I, I, I was here, not working here, but living here in the 2008 credit crisis. And Dubai, instead of sitting on its laurels, looked at how resilient it could be in regards to how it can restructure. Yes, unfortunately, people lost their jobs, but that's going to happen anyway in any form of global crisis. But as a city, it bounced back really, really quickly. Yeah. So in relation to other parts of the GCP and in fact, the whole Middle East, it's a very forward thinking infrastructure that's here. And obviously with Expo 2020, stroke 2021, it's still kind of a cool place to be. How does the, the specific characteristics of La Perle, like cultural characteristics of La Perle and its individuals fit into this macro culture that it's Dubai and the Emirates? People have different concepts of what the actual storyline of the show is. But the way I see the show is looking at the past of the UAE, rapidly moving through the, the over a few decades rapid growth of Dubai and the great UAE itself, and then taking a glimpse into the future. Now, if you look at the name La Pearl, the region is very famous for pearl diving. So that's how that mixes in with it. And creatively, I think Franco tried to look at the mixes in culture and a perception of the future of the UAE. So it moves through past, present, future. Yeah. Is it as culturally aligned as it could be? No. Yeah, there's not a huge amount of GCC culture within the show, but there's still various elements in regards to how rapidly the UAE is growing. Yeah, because if you think about even since I've been here, a lot of the building structures that you see in Dubai now weren't, weren't here, you know. And to spend 15 years watching this city emerge basically from the desert is absolutely fantastic. You know, and if you look at old images back to 25, 30 years ago, most of what I can see out, out of my balcony now was all desert with one or two hotels and other small buildings, a mosque here, a mosque there, etc. And to see what Dubai has grown into now is amazing in such a short space of time. And so when um, the pandemic hit, tell us about how UAE dealt with that and then secondly, how that affected the show or if it did, how much? We started to see the hype around the pandemic starting to build as far back as the end of January, beginning of February. I was back in the UK, I flew back here at the end of January, and that's really when the first case of COVID-19 was officially reported here in the UAE. 
Initially, we were going to bring our, our theatre dark because normally we take a month-long dark during Ramadan forward a week because we were hoping that we were only going to close for a very, very short space of time. We already proactively started to engage with our government bodies, so Dubai Tourism and um, Culture Ministry, the Dubai Health Authority, our local partners, etc., etc., to start to receive guidance from them. Unfortunately, um, very, very quickly, we were told we had to close early, and that was on the 15th of March. We didn't actually go into lockdown here in the UAE until the 4th of April, though. But as soon as we went into lockdown, everything moved rapidly. The borders closed, everybody was in lockdown, businesses closed, only only critical businesses um, stayed open to keep the cases down and basically kick the pandemic further down the road so the healthcare system could improve. And that's what they did very, very quickly. We basically stayed in lockdown for just short two months. Within the theatre, the technical departments, we were having Zoom meetings every week because we had to basically still keep a skeleton crew on site to do all of our bump checks, inspections, lighting inspections, et cetera, et cetera. Plus we had some critical work that we needed to do on the wet stage. So even though we were on a very, very small skeleton crew, we still had the ability to keep the theatre going. Yeah, and that was very important for us because we, even though we didn't know when we'd reopen, we knew that we would reopen. It was a very difficult time. The government here were very proactive in regards to pushing out information. And the cool thing about it was that they were using social media and they still are using social media. So the National Crisis and Emergency Management Authority, they're constantly tweeting things. So people follow them. So their, their, their crisis management capability in regards to social media is vastly improved if you were to align them with, say, the United Kingdom. Yeah, The UK are looking very, very negative. We closed down, and then the economy started to be massaged and reopened. You know, we're still social distancing, we're still wearing masks, but more and more things started to reopen. It started very, very slowly, where businesses could start to reopen at, at a certain percentage. They started with 30% and 50%. And then we started to reopen more rapidly. Now, on the 16th of June, we had a big head of department meeting in regards to how long it would take us to fully reopen, get people back into the country, and get the theatre, the act, the technical and artistic validations actually where we wanted them to be. So then we started to rapidly move through the various different levels to protect our staff, but also try to put on a show still during the pandemic. Yeah. So the government here, they were very proactive. You know, continuous information, their reopening instead of going back into another lockdown, I think was a very, very positive measure. Because again, as I was, as I was mentioning to Anna earlier, our age of our community here, our population is very young. You know, you're looking 93% of the population is younger than 55. Yeah, only 1.5% of the population here are actually older than 65. So we've got age on our side. 
also being an expat who has to go through medicals, etc., to get you know, to get our visas, people with predefined medical conditions generally aren't here because if they have got a very serious condition, they're taken care of and then they're repatriated back to their own country. So again, the impact of COVID nineteen. Yes, we have of course had deaths. We are still seeing cases here. But it's being managed a lot better than what I can see from my own country back in the UK and what I can see on mainstream and social media from other countries around the world. Yeah, so I think the UAE managed it very well. Would you say that you were actually, you went on lockdown for two months, but you were able to negotiate, still be working, still keep like a core team to keep everything running right so was the government open for you to do so um we had to get special permission as in even if you wanted to go to the supermarket you had to apply for a permit to move there were police checkpoints to make sure people were doing what they were supposed to be doing yeah and and the fines if you were caught not wearing a mask or if you were in a vehicle with anybody else initially then you will find quite a hefty fine, which I think, again, is further enforcing the importance of following the rules. And people here generally did. And, and that was good. For movement back into the theatre, the people who actually did go back to work, it was on a rolling scale. So one or two riggers would work for three days and another couple of riggers. The same for lighting, the same for automation, the same for facilities management, technical direction, the same. In regards to the management structure, had to get approvals to actually move from their house to work. Now, most of us live a couple of minutes away from work, so we basically just walk, as Anna knows. But others had to get a special work permit. And that wasn't just us, that was across the board. Do you find that uh, the protocols you already had in place uh, for the safety and well-being of the cast and crew from before the pandemic somewhat helped once you had to adapt to new or to this situation quickly? I'd say to a certain extent, yes, because we already had um, generally a safety conscious mindset. But as soon as we went into lockdown, I started to search for any information I could in relation to the pandemic. Now, the good thing was I started to find articles, etc., in regards to Phantom of the Opera in South Korea because they continued to stay open all the way through the pandemic. And I started to analyze what they were doing. I started to reach out to people that I knew in the health community to find out as much as I could. I started to analyze what measures I could put in place in regards to ensuring safety but also ensuring a decent show loading as well because obviously if you put some measures in place it's going to inhibit and create choke points where lots and lots of people are going to be congregating to try to get through a small safety measure window so i spent most of lockdown just researching doing courses i started to sideline and train because obviously i, I still needed to make money and um, started to create in my mind and on paper what I was going to ask for. And obviously getting support from the other technical departments, artistic direction, 
Jeff, our general stage manager, we were, we were all coming together and it was kind of throwing ideas onto the table, discussing the effectiveness of them in A, ensuring that we're as safe as possible in regards to COVID-19, but all of the other hazards and risks that go with large-scale entertainment event like ours as well. I didn't want people to lose focus on the other things. So we just added this as an extra layer of the things that we were already dealing with. Yeah, I, I agree because I, I I just recently tried to organise an event that was um, here in Hong Kong and the COVID protocols just became another pillar of organisation we had to do, not necessarily something that was like, it was just, you know, there's always a number of factors you have to organise when you're putting on something. So it was just another process to, to deal with. What was the the audience's like behavior reaction, you know, was there less anyway during this situation? And, you know, because I'm assuming you had to socially distance the audience as well, right? Yeah, we did. We went down to 50% occupancy and we designed the seating structure like a checkerboard. So nobody was sitting in front of you, like one row in front, no, nobody behind, so people were offset. Yeah, so you'd have like two people or three people and then a two-seat space and then some more people and then offset like a checkerboard the row in front would be the same but what we did from the start was we started to train people the very first thing we did was by department so artistic direction they would have one briefing from me in regards to the basic minimum standard when we went went back into a training and conditioning regime for a couple of weeks because we didn't want to go straight bang, we're open, let's put on a show. We had to slowly transition because yes, the artists were fit, but they weren't match fit. You know, they weren't conditioned enough to mitigate the risk of injury. So we spent about two weeks putting together various different protocols, improving safety measures, improving our, our PPE capability, putting hand sanitizer all over the place. And then as people started to come back to work, they would spend about 30 or 40 minutes with me discussing the measures that we'd implemented, including social distancing when they were training down in the dance studio, the rehearsal room, etc. And then as we started to transition through the various levels of, of, of reopening the show, some of those measures started to reduce a little bit because one of the regulations that was published here was the artists, whilst they're on the stage, don't need to wear masks. So how we overcame the risk to the artists and the crew was not what we were doing, but how we were doing it. So the riggers, when, when they were practicing rescue pickups, instead of picking off the artist, they picked off a distinguer in regards to Chappelle, etc. When we were looking at um, our rescue procedures and cardiopulmonary resuscitation, we started to use BVM more as, as in bag valve mask. On top of the bag valve mask, we got bacterial and viral filters because obviously when you're doing CPR, there's a massive risk of aerosolization of any vapor coming out of the casualty. The artists themselves are very open to coming back to work because they've missed it. The tech crew is the same. The audience's reaction from the start I was fearful that we would get people not wanting to wear masks. We would get people not wanting to social distance. But it generally didn't happen because, again, we spent a lot of time with the front of house crew in regards to proactively 
and safely intervening early if there is a problem. So um, the front of house supervisors had, had iPads. So if we sat people too close together, then we could move them dynamically and there wouldn't be an issue. If the ushers, etc., saw somebody with a mask just below their nose, they, they politely asked them, please, could you put your mask on? And nobody that I saw actually pushed back against that. Now, I've seen on, on social media even now, people in other parts of the world complaining that they have to wear a mask. But over here, generally, it's become second nature. You know, where people are actually feeling like they're naked if they're going out of the house without a mask on. Yeah. But one of the challenges was, because our artists were going on stage without a mask, we had to recreate the actual dynamic of the show to make sure that there was that four metre distance between the artists and the audience. Also, educating the artists specifically and the crew in regards to what they did outside of work would actually impact what they did inside of work. Because sometimes, you, you know, you need to let go, you need to go out, you need to have a beer, you need to relax. You can't put people in boxes. You can't throw them onto the stage and then say, right, you're now going to go into a hotel room or you're going to go back to your apartment and do nothing because that's going to affect people's mental health. So continuously in um, magic carpets, in company meetings, etc., we're constantly engaging with people, even via email, in regards to what you do outside will directly impact what we can achieve together within the show. And touch wood, it's working so far. I mean, yeah, for sure, because realities, if, you, if you've got all of those control measures within the theatre, the chances of the likelihood of somebody catching it is actually not there. It's in their own personal life, isn't it? More than in a controlled measure. <laughs> so what are the lessons that you've learned in that process in terms of, you know, applying new procedures quickly into a into a theatre that, you know, I mean, because, you know, 12 months ago you wouldn't have had to have planned anything like this, yet you've probably had to adapt so much. What would you say the lessons that you've learned are from that? I think what, what we did and how we did it, we did it quite quickly because we continued to communicate, yeah? So Carl would send out a Zoom initially and then Teams meeting request and all of the heads you know, heads of department from their various different houses would close in and sit down. And we would discuss what's happening in the world, what information we're hearing in regards to when we're going to reopen. Yeah. So the challenges for me was, it was quite scary because you're still in a big space with a lot of people. Yeah. And because by health and safety background, just the face mask alone, that's the least effective measure if you look at the hierarchy of risk and throw. Yeah. So thinking about how else can we protect each other? Yeah. So creating bubbles and actually engaging with people say, if you are going out, go out together. Try not to um, engage with people outside of the referral bubble. Yeah, which again is quite, you know, quite challenging because you do have to go to a supermarket. You might go to a restaurant or a bar because all the bars and restaurants are open here. The clubs aren't, but the bars and restaurants are where somebody else isn't wearing a mask. So 
looking at the dynamic risk assessment process of making your own choices and actually thinking about your actions before you take them. Yeah. So that was the most challenging thing for me was going from a very fun, loving, hugging people community. Because normally when you go on a theatre dark, when everybody comes back, they give each other a big hug because they've missed each other. And the energy is amazing. Now, seeing people come back, the energy was still super good. But you're like, oh, I can't even shake hands. So trying to get that culture out of a community that's really loving was probably the most challenging thing for me. Yeah, Everything else, it was just searching through the minefield of data in regards to safety measures and thinking about what actually fit us. Now, some things we try out, like face shifts, in regards to rescue procedures, because we still need to have hands-on rescue capability. But they didn't work for us, because when you're backstage, they steam up. So then that became a risk itself. Yeah. So, yeah, the most challenging thing was trying not to be so loving and hug people. And that's challenging. Yeah. And not turn myself into the mask police. Yeah, because I'd, I'd achieved so much in breaking down the walls, like I said before. I didn't want to turn that into a negative, walking around telling people to put their masks on all the time. Yeah. So it's challenging. It's continuously challenging every day to keep people's minds focused. Yeah, not just on COVID-19, but the other things as well. Because what I've, what I've noticed globally, like speaking to my family and people all around the world, the mental health effect this pandemic's had is mind-blowing, yeah? And I've started to see elements of that in the local community here as well. And engaging with people in regards to, if you're not feeling okay, it's okay not to feel okay. And reach out to people, talk, yeah, if you feel comfortable. It's, vi you know, it's vitally important, especially in our community, because... We need to be so focused when the artists are on stage. Yeah, the tech crews need to be so focused in regards to the safety spots, loading the artists onto the various theatrical pieces safely. Now, if their mind's on something else, that in itself becomes a potential critical failure point. Yeah, so trying to keep people's motivation up because we are, well, one of the only shows still open in the world. I know House of Dancing Water Hope open for a short while, Absinthe in Las Vegas open for a short while, but we're the only show that I've heard of that stayed open, and Touchwood will continue to stay open. But it's challenging every day because everything's sales-driven. Yeah, so Dubai is doing everything it can to massage the economy safely and adding extra layers of safety measures in regard to certain countries. But... If people don't want to come here because they can't afford to, then obviously that's a critical failure point as well, especially in the entertainment industry, because a fantastic show is only a fantastic show if people want to continue coming to see it. Yeah, and as a, in, in a tourism community like Dubai, it's challenging. Do you think, well, I actually know you'd think this, you've said it. I like how you phrase the fact that, so you have your original or the, the, let's say, the default risks that the show come with, or comes with, 
And then you had to add this on top, making sure this was, uh, so you had to add COVID on top of your risk protocols and measures that you had. And I like that you're adding on top of that an extra layer of, of risk when it comes to the mental health and the extraneous circumstances. All this is already put into that community. So slowly but surely, everything piles up and then we have to take care of all that to make sure the show keeps running, literally. If you look at how we started back in June, we started slowly and then it started to accelerate because we actually opened our first show on the 30th of July, which coincided with um, one of the Eid holidays yeah, because we wanted to maximize on the sales potential of, of that time. But we had quite an amount of time for me to do the global risk assessment and then empower all of the technical and artistic hearts to do their own risk assessments in relation to how their department fitted in with the show. So when you look at that, it's embedding not what they were doing, but how they were doing it that needed to change. And actually being open and being there to offer feedback in regards to the ideas I had. Because we had to look at the actual sanitizer that we used. Yeah, it couldn't be too alcohol-based because it would affect the equipment we had. So we used a, a spray sanitizer that would be harmful to the equipment, as in, as in the synthetic ropes, the matting, etc., etc. That would become more dangerous. So we had to analyze what products we could use that A, would as far as reasonably practical kill off COVID-19, but also protect as far as reasonably possible our other equipment and not be harmful to people. Because if you think about, we run two shows a night, we've got a very small show loadout window to re-sanitize the theater before the new audience members come in. So we've got to look at the impact to the audience members as well. Yeah. So we looked at various different products and then chose a product that, that's basically water and a little bit of chlorine that goes through an electronic process to change its makeup to make it capable of killing a virus and a bacteria. And then we use fogging machines so we can do it quickly across the seating and any high, high foot traffic areas. So the rehearsal rooms are desanitized on a regular basis. All of the seating, yeah? The B1 backstage track, the P4 catwalk, P5, the dance studio, et cetera, et cetera. Also implementing for the artists their own infection protection and control measures when they're actually working out in the gym. So things like sanitizing tools before using them and not expecting that somebody else has done it before you. All touch services, like say in a control booth where you know, you've got an operator change out. The operator that's coming on, they sanitize all touch surfaces first, sanitize their hands, and then start to work before entering the control room. The same thing, yeah? Um, promoting, and it sounds strange because everybody should know how to wash their hands, correct hand washing processes, and actually putting up little picture, you know, pictogram posters in every toilet, yeah? Very visual signage for the lifts, yeah? In regards to wearing a mask when you're in the lift. In the freight lifts, only six people. In the passenger lifts, maximum four people. And if you see somebody breaking the rules, 
engaging with them instead of shouting at them. Yeah, to say, look, come on, screw you know, screw them up. You didn't like it when we were locked down and we were on unpaid leave. We've got a fantastic opportunity now to be a trailblazer for the rest of the entertainment community. So screw them up. It's not going to be forever that we have to be in this environment, but it has to be for now so we can continue to keep the show open. Yeah. So it's constantly engaging with people, constantly thinking about other things. The HVAC system, the actual filters, we we sanitize it every single day. Yeah. Obviously, the water, we keep chemically balanced anyway, and chlorine kills COVID-19, so that's fine. But it's just those extra layers. The thermal cameras, the temperature checks, even though it's a little bit hit and miss, and you do get false negatives or false positives, it's still an extra layer of redundancy. And it's also the perception of the audience or the cast or crew or visitor or contract when they see that, like, these are extra measures that are actually there to keep me safe, yeah? And some people do switch off. Um, you know, it's the only single point of failure in regards to any safety measure are human beings, yeah? Because you can't 100% of the time stay focused. Due to your mindset, you might be having a bad day. So actually analyzing people's body language, especially in the theater, is vitally important as well because then you can start to understand they're working against the system because there may be something else going on in their life and not pointing fingers and reporting people just speaking to them engagingly to try to proactively improve their safety culture because some people get it straight away some people are very risk conscious and they immerse themselves in health and safety culture, other people are very risk averse and they think it doesn't matter. So you've got to cater to all people when you put the various different layers of redundancy in regards to safety together. And in work, we do it. But if you think about risk management, it's macro outside to micro inside. So it doesn't matter what we do, if the area around us or the people around us or people leaving us and going into the outside world, if the risk is increasing, then it doesn't matter what we do as much. So again, we, we continue to engage with people to stay within their own bubbles. Yeah, go out, relax because they deserve it. You know, we're doing a lot of shows per, per week um, and the guys are very tired. But engaging with them to actually take ownership of their own personal safety and security, yeah? which is vitally important even outside of a pandemic. And chip, chip, chip away. And like, you know, well, like I said, what we're doing inside is working, how we're engaging with people outside seems to be working as well. So Touchwood is gonna to continue and hopefully the vaccine is gonna be a winner. Yeah, for those who, who, who are comfortable taking the vaccine. Yeah, because that, is an extra layer as well to improve our business continuity processes yeah, in regards to the vaccine. And I think that's a very positive thing for the whole entertainment industry. For sure, but I think also you've you know you talk about if you can't control if you can't control it outside the bubble of the theatre, then you know it's going to be a much harder situation. And I think the advantage of somewhere like Dubai is overall you have quite a compliant society 
that will adhere to a certain, and it's the same here in Hong Kong. We're very compliant and therefore that you said that but earlier when people, it's more abnormal to walk outside with a, without a mask than it is to walk out with a mask these days. And it's it's definitely the same, although I still tend to head down to the ferry but and forget to put on my mask from time to time and have to buy one from 7-Eleven at the last minute. But it's it's generally something that's become socially unacceptable to be walking around without it. In fact, I feel very uncomfortable. So I, I find that really fascinating because it definitely, when I was in Australia, was not the vibe. And I'm sure that's that's not the UK or the uh, the USA situation as well. So I I find that cultural compliance very fascinating, and also it's not just a particular race, is it? Because we are Westerners living in a foreign country, and we've all become very compliant because we live there. And I feel like when you live in Dubai or you work in Dubai, there's certain accommodations you must make um, being a Westerner in that location, and so therefore adapting to wearing a mask is just another one of those accommodations as it is in Asia where I have had to make accommodations here that is not of my Western upbringing and therefore doing as they do in a situation like this is really not such a big deal. Would you agree? Yeah, well, I I look at it that even though I'm a resident here, I'm still a visitor. So I look at, the you know, the equality and diversity. Yes, I'm Christian, but... I understand and respect other people's cultures, and I don't let a piece of, you know, a person's nationality or their culture affect how I get on with that person. You know, if people are nice to me, I'm going to be nice to them, and that's what I think really works here. You know, there's so many people that I used to work with in Iraq, and they're like, "How can you stand living in the Middle East?" And I'm like, "Well, it's it's normal." You know, I've got friends from all over the world, and. We don't look at each other as different. We just look at each other as people. So I think that's one of the very positive points here. And the regulations that were pushed out through social media by the National Crisis Emergency Management Authority, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, the fines were quite high, but they were very simple to follow. Yeah. So like in the United Kingdom, you hear Boris Johnson on television all the time and says this, this, this and this and then you see on social media it explodes in regards to people saying well I didn't understand it but the the regulations here are quite clear you know clear cut wear a mask when you're outside in public places try and social distance as much as reasonably possible two meters and wash your hands yeah you can take your mask off when you're in a vehicle alone or with members of your family if you're in an office on your own you can take your mask off if you're exerting um, physical activity and you can keep a, t- a two-meter social distance bubble, you can take your mask off, et cetera, et cetera. So they're quite clear-cut. So um, I think people here, because of how proactive the government here has been in regards to communication, I've understood the regulations a lot clearer. You know, Some people would say, oh, yeah, they might be afraid of, of losing their job or this or this or this. I really don't think that that's the case. You know, generally people here, they like the fact that Dubai is reopened, even though, unfortunately, some people lost their jobs and people, their salaries were reduced, etc. It's still an open community. You still can go out for a walk. Yeah. You still can go to a restaurant if you wish. You can go to the beach, etc., etc., etc. So there's a lot of things to do because of how 
proactive the the government have been to supporting the general community here. Yeah. Which is, you know, I, I think it's very positive. And yes, it, you know, it is the Middle East, so there are various different, more conservative rules, but there's not that many. They've relaxed a lot of the rules and regulations recently yeah, in regards to people who aren't married cohabiting together. Yeah, so you no longer need to get married to just come here with your boyfriend or girlfriend. So that is a very forward-thinking step for GCC. The peace treaty with Israel is a very forward step for GCC. Yeah, so there's a lot of things going on here that are, that are very positive. I think some people, excuse me, they come here because they've heard horror stories from another country or 20, 30 years ago. And it really isn't the case. As long as you don't cause trouble, as long as you're a peaceful, you know, a peaceful, happy person, you get on quite well here. It isn't, it isn't the place to be for everybody, but generally, a lot of people they still take nice memories from their time here, no matter how short how, or how long. Just a quick context. So the show reopened in July. How many people back of house and front of house were involved? in this process of reopening, just going back and tying that up? When we initially opened, it, it was 60 plus. Unfortunately, we lost quite a lot of people who, for whatever reason, decided to end their relationship with LaPerl. So currently, off the top of my head, like 35, approximately 30 to 35 cast, which is a lot smaller than it was. But when we reopened, we didn't reopen with a full show. Yeah. We looked at what we could create safely and slowly over time start to add extra layers. So when we first opened, instead of a 90-minute show, the show was about 65, 70 minutes. And then slowly, 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 as we get new cast members in, they've been validated onto the various you know, theatrical pieces that they're going to perform with. Then we slowly add extra acts back into the show because recently, Chappelle made it back into the show, but we needed to understand was it technically capable. Um, we went through rescue validations and then obviously artistic validations as well, because the last thing we want is to put something in the show and not have it the safest it can be. Yeah. Um, so tech crews, over 100. Front of house, I'd say about 30. And then, and then various support staff, you've got probably about, in total, maybe 200, 220 people. Yeah, for, and our show's quite small. We've got a lot of new people, and that's really proactive as well, because it's a new set of eyes. You know, if you've been on, well, in any kind of job for a long period of time, you start to become overly complacent. You know, you start to think things that aren't normal, are normal, because you see them every day, or you do them every day. So, the new crew, the new artists that we've got coming or that have come already are proactively looking at things with different eyes. So they're, they're saying, well, can't we do it this way? Because this way would work more. Yeah. And I always say to people, if you've got a better idea than mine, I'm super open to hearing it and implementing it because everybody's role is safety, not just mine. Yeah. So it's being proactive, it's continuing to chip away at embedding positive, you know, positivity in safety. 
and absorbing other people's ideas. Yeah, because we've got some super talented people who've just joined the show. Yeah, who are bringing a lot of other show experience in regards to technical and creative elements that we could think about adding to the show to revitalize it a little bit. So that's kind of cool as well. We're talking about fire and various fire acts, which is kind of cool. So yeah, I think, you know, we're in a good place. Um, I hope it continues moving forward. What do you like most about your job, Steve? Every day is different. Every day there's a challenge, but when you look at a challenge, you, you look at it in a positive way to turn it into an opportunity. So instead of looking at things negatively, I look at how can we learn from this. So take, for instance, accident, incident reporting. You know, it's never negative unless, obviously, somebody becomes seriously injured or even worse. We can learn from it. So looking at it um, critically, yes, something caused this, but what was it? What did we miss? How can we improve? Yeah. So every day is a challenge. Um, I like to spend most of my time wandering about and speaking to people because I'm a big believer that safety shouldn't be behind a desk. Yeah, so I try to spend as little as time as possible behind a desk. And I cut about, I get involved in things. I like to go and watch the artist rehearse. Yeah, because yes, I love the show. But B, I'm starting to look at how we can change the dynamic of reducing overuse injuries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, you'll see me a lot of the time in the theatre just watching. Yeah? Or talking to Rob, or talking to Jeff, or talking to Carl, or talking to Anton about challenges and how we can collectively turn them into opportunities. Yeah. And obviously stay current with horizon scanning for other threats and opportunities as well. Because obviously it's a very tricky time globally in regards to what COVID-19 is going to do to the landscape of the world moving forward. Yeah. So, yeah, I enjoy my job. It's challenging. But I like challenges. You know, it, it, life would be boring if it wasn't challenging. And you're not very short experience anymore working in the live entertainment and doing health and safety for live entertainment is there anything you you'd like to change or is there something that you yeah if you could change something i'd like to get to the end of the year when i'm doing my reports and have zero incidents zero near misses to get to that stage but i'm a realist yeah the things we do on the stage are very high risk. So of course you're going to have things that happen, but turning them into opportunities, learning and growing. If there's anything I could change, dial back a year and change how we globally responded to, to the pandemic to actually reduce the impact, not just for us, but for everybody else. Because again, macro to micro, we could be safe as houses, but if people are struggling in other parts of the world, they will not want to come to Dubai. And that's going to be super unfortunate because Dubai, about 11% of the GDP comes directly from tourism, yeah, or industries that feed into tourism. So we need the rest of the world to get ahead of the game and defeat the pandemic, yeah. So anything I can change, go back in time and eradicate COVID-19 at the source and not allow it to spread as rapidly as it did. We as humans are quite slow learners, I think. I think if it happens again, 
we'll be ready. <laughs> People bang words around like unprecedented, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it wasn't. You know, we've had so many near misses. You look at MERS, you look at SARS, you look at H1N1 swine flu. I class them as near misses that we could have globally dealt with. If you look at how South Korea dealt with the pandemic, Hong Kong, China, Macau, yeah, they were miles ahead of the game because they already had learned that lesson from years before when they were fighting SARS. For sure. I mean, Hong Kong's Hong Kong's reaction was very, very swift and very um, effective, you know, although, you know, this one has been far more virulent than the other strains. And like you said, I guess we were just lucky with the other ones. It was only a matter of, you know, Bill Gates, I think, did a TED Talk a few years back and he said it's only a matter of time before something like this happens and this is the biggest threat to humanity. And so it's interesting because, you know, as terrible as it is, this will reoccur, I'm sure, in history. So we should just hope that us as societies are more prepared the next time, you know. Uh, one would one would hope, but if it's another 100 years like it was since 19-something or other, 1915, we, we forget short memories. <laughs> it is, but that's almost history repeating itself as well, isn't it? Because the first wave of the Spanish flu was not as bad as the second wave. And our second wave is is terrible. Like our first wave of COVID-19, it was bad. A lot of people in the UK and the States lost their lives and other parts of the world, of course. But the second wave is just horrible. Where yeah. we're at now is the worst it's ever been, man. This is it. This no. is it. So it's crazy. Oh, anyway, we're going to get through it. And like you said, get on top of it. So where's uh, where can our audience look for more information on safety webinars you do, trainings you teach? Tell us about that. How do we find you? I consult for, for various other companies. Horizon West Africa is one company that I consult for. I do a lot of travel risk and crisis management courses for them. I also consult for Achieve Consultancy um, or just Look me up on LinkedIn and I'm always posting things in regards to what I'm doing, either webinars or virtual trainings, et cetera, et cetera. So just contact me through LinkedIn and if I can help, even if it's just a Zoom conversation with another individual who is looking at entering into entertainment safety or is about to open a show or a live event and they want to have a virtual coffee and discuss what what I've done well or what I didn't do so well and how I could change things, and I'm more than happy to. Thanks for joining us. It was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Please write a review on our podcast whenever you listen to our podcast and let your friends know about us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life by visiting our website at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on social media and leave your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter, or YouTube. We really want to thank David Zaya for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Sharotta, who is our sound engineer. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life podcast, where we put the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world.